Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. All right, welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today's episode is going to be a really important episode and a very timely episode given the state of the world that we continue to live in. Today's guest is Scott Maxwell, who's the Executive Director of Wounded Warriors Canada. Scott is somebody who is driven through service, but also driven through really making a difference through process and even through governance and through best practices. So this is someone that you're going to really want to listen up to about experience, lived experience, and how to really help to shape change in community. So Scott, thank you so, so much for joining us today. And also, I thought it might be interesting. Maybe could you help our listeners understand how we became connected? Absolutely. So it's a small world as we continue to find and uh, no different here, taking us all the way fast forwarding throughout my journey and our time, my time here at Wounded Warriors led to a relationship with a Surrey based firefighter, Matt Johnston and his best high school friend who still, still hang out together and doing good things. His name is Gus an occupational awareness training for healthcare providers that support those that we serve our Canadian forces members, our veterans, our first responders and their families. So they're into my, uh, we call it with Wind Wars Canada is now in its 3.0. I've met them and they've come into our 3.0 iteration of, of Wounded Warriors Canada, which, you know, as I like to say, it's a, it's a bit of a 10 year overnight success that, um, you know, we're doing all this stuff now. We're a national mental health service provider, but we weren't. When I kind of was connected to this file and started to figure out that this might be a path and a journey for me that led me to this organization and just a little bit of background. I was working, you know, I went to school for Canadian foreign policy, international relations. I wanted to probably go into the foreign service, maybe as a diplomat or help Canadians detained overseas. And I was working for a minister at the time and uh, way back in the early 2000s, whose nephew, Sapper Mike McTagg, was uh, nearly killed by an IED in Afghanistan and, and then was cared for in Langschule, Germany. And the assisting officer in the Padre, I, who I got to know through Mike's injury, just by tracking it through Dan, my boss, just started paying a lot of attention to what was happening in 2006, obviously a very difficult period of time for Canada in that particular mm-hmm. conflict. And, and it was there that started to figure out that uh, there's a lot of gaps, there's tons of issues affecting those that are serving in Afghanistan at the time, those that would come home from Afghanistan around the invisible injury, operational stress, mental health. That, of course, the country just wasn't set up to properly respond to. And then from there, my high school best friend, uh, one of my high school good friends, Daryl Caswell, he was killed in 2007, so not barely a year later. So I was just this galvanizing year period of my life where on uh, my professional life, I was kind of watching the situation unfold through a family member of, a, of one of my employer and then paying attention to the new Veterans Charter and a lot of things that were happening was because Canada was so entrenched. And then boom, you know, you're eating your breakfast one morning and you see your uh, your high school buddy's uh, dead photo, as they call it, appear on the screen. And, you know, it was only, geez, he, I think it was, you know, six years from the time he joined the Canadian Forces. It was already, I was sitting with him in, on 9-11 when the second plane hit the tower and he looked at me and said, uh, that's enough of this. I'm going to go and join and, mm-hmm. and get over there and help kind of take it to whoever did this to us. And it was, you know, whatever it was, six years later, he was... Uh, that picture was appearing on my screen in my living room. So it was just this 
wild time. And that led me to think, I, you know, at the time, just from a personal reflection perspective is back then in the early, late nineties or the nineties and early two thousands up to nine 11, when, you know, the Canadians just didn't have that great connection to the, to the Canadian forces or toward a service that much. You know, I remember everyone was kind of joking at Daryl, are you going for the free education? Even though this was after nine 11, it was kind of like, you're just going in there because you're not, you're, you're just not doing well here. The school's not your thing or whatever it was. It wasn't to go and that embodiment of service and, and pay it forward and help the global community be stabilized is, was not how we were reacting to him wanting to join. And so I, upon his death, I just kind of made that personal pledge. If I could, if I could help and, and give back to his life and to service generally to those that do serve, then I would kind of find my way to do that. Thank you for doing that because what I've come to learn in having the opportunity to meet some remarkable humans doing important work, it sounds like you've got this, or maybe you've developed this kind of action bias, which is an interesting concept in that you have to kind of do and then figure out along the way, which can be really hard, right? And, and very intimidating. Very intimidating, very hard. Like by the time I had left that, so that was fast forward years later, I was still carried on with my federal public service career that I transitioned into the provincial public service in Ontario, working with children and youth, mental health here. And then, so then all of a sudden it was Canada's missions winding down. Uh, Everything's being repatriated back from overseas. And then there was this massive rise of the invisible injury. We were losing more Canadians who served in Afghanistan to suicide by suicide than we were to those who were killed in theater. So I was still paying attention to this little fund, Sapper, Mike McTagg, Wounded Warrior Fund that was set up after Mike's injury mm-hmm. back in 06, reflecting on Daryl's life, all of that through my career. And then that was the time it was, I was asked by a board member if I'd come and help them respond because they had two streams. It was either we're going to wind down this little volunteer initiative that served us while we were overseas in Afghanistan or, or we're going to help develop something that can actually respond to this vastly emerging need in the mental health realm for Canadian Armed Forces members. And they picked the lane. They wanted to go ahead with it. So they asked me if I would kind of leave that career and come give them a hand to set up this to a, a mental health foundation at the time that could do something. So, of course, here I am leaving, you know, Bain <laughs> Wellesley, downtown Toronto, packing up my things, my Boss, you know, my minister at the time I was working for thought it was a great gut response, but she often questioned, you know, you should, many times I reflect is, do you sure you, you, are you sure you know what you're doing? Cause, and I'm like, I just had this now, I had this total action oriented response the whole time. I, I never doubted it for a second. And I found myself in the back of an orthodontist office here in Whitby, Ontario with, with a desk, a cell phone and a laptop thinking that moment where I thought, my goodness, what the heck have I done? And I don't know. I just felt it was, I had that this was the right thing to be doing. There's a need for it. And if you do it right and you build it over the long term and you don't overpromise and you don't underdeliver and you just, you build the right team and everyone's patient with the process that it's going to take to accomplish that, then you're going to, I felt we would be able to, to accomplish something pretty significant. So that was 2013. And that, so you're saying that, that very scary, you know, awkward moments where I still to this day, having never worn a uniform in my life, having never, uh, right. having not a family that comes directly from a, a branch of service, it, it's still one of those, probably one of those difficult things for me that if I'm not sure if I'll ever get over it in, in, a, in a sense that, you know, these are very brother, sister oriented trust, like no other kind of a, a sector where they literally are each other's battle buddies. They're each other's, you know, lifesavers. And 
you're kind of stepping into this from a civilian perspective, but trying to bring a higher quality of care to the conversation. It's always been a little bit of a, the, probably one of the most difficult things I've had to uh, mm-hmm. navigate. That's more personally. I've never been received that way, never been responded to in any negative, not once in any negative way as a result of why I'm here and what we're doing this for. But it's just as a human, as myself, you always, you're always sensitive to try to make sure that you're coming at it from the right lane and with that purity of purpose and that intention, because and that's what I think we've, as we've shifted and grown over the course of time, the clinical evidence-informed, evidence-based practices that it doesn't matter if you've served or not, you have to eventually have to take the conversation to the professional level to provide that quality of care and treatment. And that's why I think we're doing, well, I know we're doing the best work we are today than ever before, but it's also allowed all of us in the civilian staff around Wounded Warriors Canada to feel super comfortable and trusted in the sector. That's, I think it's, I think it's amazing. And there's so much in there and thank you for sharing that contextual background. Cause I think it's really important for the listeners of this podcast. And obviously the name of the podcast is brain mastery. And, and the idea behind that is really rooted in that word service is how do we share information about processes, programs, uh, approaches that one could take to help to get that 1% better. Right. And, and provide a real reason for hope, not any sort of false hope, but what are some practices? You know, I'm reminded one of the folks we had on, he had a corporate life up until his mid 50s and then to started you know, to take up running. He yeah, a family me- member went through a very serious illness and then he started taking up running and he would never been an athlete his whole life. But he wanted to have a better quality of life, a better mental and brain health throughout his life. And here's a guy who now got, he has that action bias like you. He saw on the news one day that women in Afghanistan were not allowed to compete in marathons. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's wrong. And his, and his wife said, Oh God, here he goes. And, and then he founded something called the secret marathon and, you know, really empowering women everywhere and everyone in communities to get moving for brain health. And I'm like, people need to hear this guy's message. It's remarkable. It is. And your message is remarkable because we were talking before we recorded here. I know a few people who have been in in the service and have come back and have had a really hard time transitioning. And we've seen that transition to be very hard for people that I've kind of worked with in the professional sports world, um, people who have shifted careers due to injury, people who have failed returning back to work and have lost a big part of their own personal identity and then had struggled with that concept of trying to be brave enough to approach the vulnerability that one needs to say, I'm not okay right now. And that's where I love what Matt's doing and I love what you're doing. And maybe I just wanted to contextually for the people who listen to this, these could be physical therapists, these could be doctors, these could be people struggling in community right now. When you think about, and you already hit on a lot of this, but Scott, if you wouldn't mind, a little bit, when you think about the world of brain health, right, inclusive of mind too, what's your main message for people to hear out there right now? Well, I think there's two things. On the positive side of the coin, I, I think that I'm encouraged. I mean, people told me that, what are you doing? Not only are you, you know, this is, you've never been involved in this sector before and you never wore a uniform and you never, you never, never. So what, what are you doing this? Wow. Are you crazy? It's not. And then B they were saying, well, not only that, but we're done. Afghanistan is over. There's, there's right. funds are going to dry up. There's going to be no, there's no more conflict. There's no more war. How are you going to do it? Are you planning to do this for more than a year? Like what is, 
this is never going to survive over the long term. And, and so the, the glass half full approach to mental health for the, in, in the sector that I'm in is, you know, for uniform service, trauma exposed professionals is revenue grew. I mean, revenue is, and we're not prop, not for profit here. So when I look at revenue basically as our ability to do programming. Right. So revenue grew every single year up until March of 2020 in the pandemic from since 2013, we never had a slump. It was the, the galvanization of the public around awareness, stigma reduction, understanding of operational stress injury, under, of brain injuries, of mental health generally, has never been uh, more at the forefront of, of anybody's mind and anyone's understanding. So that encourages me because I was told that this was going to be the exact opposite. And thank God that it, it wasn't the case because we're helping about 2,000 500 different clients in a 12-month period. I sometimes get the chills thinking a lot of these services weren't available just five, six, seven years ago. Imagine if and I know the consequences of, the, of that reality. I've, I hear it every day from families, surviving spouses, members themselves who are struggling, saying if this was only available 10 years ago, where would I be? So I'm just so thankful and thrilled that Canadians have stepped up. They're continuing to want to learn and look at things differently and do better by this. You know, but the other side, the other message for me when it comes to a main message is we need to understanding this. I think it's time we also move beyond the efforts of just stigma reduction itself and that we get to a point where we're actually making trauma. And for again, I'm just speaking the lens of yeah. we serve yeah. that we make trauma exposure management a, a new professional standard, not unlike how we train our Canadian Forces members to do their work, or a police officer, a firefighter, a paramedic, a correctional service officer, a border service agent, Coast Guard. I mean, these are highly professionally trained individuals, mainly around physical and tactical uh, operative measures. Unfortunately, the psychological health, wellness uh, through training has absolutely never been part of the equation at all. So what I would like to, what we're encouraging organizations to do, and I would like Canada to look at at every level, at the end of the day, these are all public servants, municipal, regional, mm-hmm. provincial, or federal. Mm-hmm. We need Canadian policymakers to make sure that we invest, prioritize psychological health and tra- as, as a training system at the front end, on the upstream side, yeah. so that it will pair properly as it should when people realize they need to take a hand or put, take that knee because they now they they have the tools to understand what is happening to them or happening to a peer, how to respond, and ultimately when to access uh, more help. And that that's my second point to that is accessing help. We've come to a point where there's so much conversation, let's talk, all sorts of initiatives, huge initiatives around having that first conversation, that first moving effort to get someone into care potentially, or someone even beginning to look at thinking about receiving care for whatever it is that they're struggling with. We know now though, that we have a gap between the stigma reduction and the conversational element of mental health and the treatment and access to treatment side of, of the paradigm around mental health as, as a healthcare sector. So my biggest fear is you kind of, you're encouraging people to Oh, it's a phone call away. It's a, it's an email away. It's it's there, and then people get the access door slammed in front of them all too frequently, which actually can set people back even further, because they've put themselves out to being vulnerable, especially when you're talking about trauma exposed uniform service professionals. I mean, service above self is the motto. It's not the hardest thing we can get these folks to do is um is sometimes just realize that they need to take some time to care for themselves. So when they when they get that. When they get that will up to go and do that, as we know, we, we might get one chance to get it right. And the consequences of not getting it right can be, can be terminal. 
So it's just a very serious conversation to look at when it comes to making sure we're pairing the conversation and stigma reduction, all the social stuff with actual culturally specific, culturally appropriate treatment for the unique needs of, of those who serve our country at home and abroad. Yeah, no, I, that's so well said. And I'm with you, you know, it makes me think though, and I love what you're doing. I love what Matt's doing. I mean, what an interesting, you know, check out his podcast too. It was really, really good, really insightful, but you know, it makes me think about one of the counters to that, which I think can be sort of fair is okay. We've raised awareness and that's great. But I have friends who are very heavily involved with the Bell Let's Talk movement, which I think is a great thing because it gets people talking about it. Totally. And that's, that's step one. And it makes it more safe. Cause I remember when I was younger, you know, th- there was no way. And I had a very stoic dad, or at least what I believe was stoic. Now yeah. I've learned more about what stoicism really is. And that's not necessarily the case, but when you think about the, we have the awareness, but if we don't have the infrastructure and the system behind that, that's where things can fall through the cracks. However, I still think it's good because it's still improving. I'm with you. I'm optimistic no. because I think we're having the conversation before we didn't. And yes, some people were maybe needing the support and service 10 years ago, but 20 years ago, the conversation wasn't even happening and you weren't even empowered to have your voice heard. So we're moving forward. But we have to still pair up the individual that's having that challenge, getting the front end training through Wounded Warriors in your group and Matt. I mean, yeah, wonderful. Yeah. But then what do we do to connect them to the care? How do we do that? How do we do that in the process space? Having the process lead the care, not the person. That's the challenge, right? And that's the challenge. And that's exactly what I'm 100%. Is, my, is this, we know too much to be doing kind of as little as we are as a country around in the investment in mental health. And it doesn't just, it tends to, we still see it kind of heavily being skewed to the research side. Like everything is about yeah. funding and re- okay, well, funding and research funding. Okay. Okay. We, like I, I'm pretty direct with the sector to say, we don't really need another research study on this. That's going to suck up majority of the millions that the government of whatever level is, will, is making available in this fiscal year, just to have researchers go out there and continue to kind of tell us what, what, I, we can certainly tell you from the front line, we already know. So we need to get moved beyond this kind of thing. This is kind of a bit of a, we're stuck in this. We got the stigma reduction efforts happening. We've got governments feeling safe just to give the money that they allocate mental health to research institutions. Fine. But then, there, but again, that gap persists and you know it's only growing every day between that, those realities over here and the actual need reality on the front line on the street. So that is a worry. It's a glass half full worry, 100%. But if we don't start to really prioritize the way to, to bridge the gap, love it. then, then there's going to be... Oh, Scott, wow. You couldn't have said it better. And I love your lived experience. Clearly, I can see in your face. You know, I can see it, how, how your face changed and the conviction at which you speak. Because you're not necessarily mad at them. You're disappointed because it's almost like what dad you say, because it's great to get research. Like I, as we were talking before we recorded, that's kind of my, and I'll be vulnerable here, very vulnerable, get ready. So, you know, when we started looking into this research question, I think you went to U of T, right? Is that right? Yes, that's yeah, right. I, I did my homework. So I, I was there at, at a conference at U of T in, in the spring of 2013 at one of the Rotman research conferences, yeah, 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 yeah. a neuroscience research conference there. And I was there with two of my mentors, uh, Barbara Aerosmith-Young. Again, I've already talked about her, but she's she's amazing. And then Howard Eaton. And at this point, I was a vice principal or principal at one of our private schools. And we were looking into neuro rehab. 
and wonderful. Like U of T is the top, right? So don't hate on me. I love U of T. But at the end of this conference, keeping in mind my bias is towards clinical delivery, right? That is definitely more my bias. And at this point, I was just finishing a master's degree. So I was all into, not into, but exposed to a lot of literature reviews and those sorts of things. And listening to some brilliant speakers talk about some really cool ideas. But at the end, I was thinking more about, okay, to have research inform and change practice, it's going to take more than a decade. So what do we do today? That was why I spent this week away in Toronto to try to better understand, based on what research was telling us, how can we translate research into practice quicker to help more people, while also ethically and responsibly studying the effect of some of these said uh, programs. And, and, and that's where you're coming from, and I couldn't agree more. Not only do we both have great haircuts, yes, yes. but that frustrates me because it's, it, how do we translate the research? Because we have these people in community today. You know, we've both been at parties where people are saying, yeah, you know what? My cousin. Yeah. You know what? Me. Yeah. You know what? But there's nothing available. And now with Bell, let's talk and these other great, not just them are raising awareness around vulnerability and, and mental health. Okay. What can we do now? How do we invest? Investing in research is great. But how about investing in clinical research on the ground? In the delivery side of care, which is not the research side of care. We need more practitioners. We need have more investment in, the, in programs that are at least evidence-informed, evidence-based in terms of their interventions. Let the research come behind and back up the work that's undertaken from a service delivery side. That is where the gap is, right? It's on the delivery mm-hmm. side of care, mm-hmm. timely access to care, you know, because I think we've just always taken this typical bit of Canadiana where you take the safe play, you know, you just give money yeah. to universities and now I'm doing something for mental health. Well, we need to look beyond this has got to, this is a po- got to look like a full postmodernist lens at this and say, mm-hmm. times have changed. We know too much. We know what the needs are, but what we need is a lot of funding now, like a lot of funding at every level to come and back all this knowledge up with actual practices and care. Because if we don't, for the sectors that I'm in, we can sadly become to get used to 30 minute 911 calls for waiting for, for care. And because we're losing people faster than we'll ever be able to staff the positions. And that's because in part, because members are comfortable to realize, Hey, I'm not feeling all right. I'm not good. I'm not okay. So they're taking, they're kind of taking the lessons that they're being, we're all telling them that they should thankfully employ for themselves, but the systems as a whole are not set up at all to deal with, the onslaught that has come with stigma reduction efforts and campaigns and just overall awareness. Well, I think, I think you hit the nail right on the head. And I think that when we look at other chronic conditions, the systems are there. We just need to use them. You know, that's the thing, like we were talking earlier, you know, about, you know, some of the work that we do. And again, bias flag here, you know, I work for a company that provides technology to, as many know, um, to communities, uh, you know, uh, trying to help at least provide more options. And that's kind of our mission and what we're on at ABI Wellness. But when I looked at other areas of like, you know, let's say, you know, maybe it's, you know, cancer care in the community, you know, these clinics exist, they're, they're, they're around, but the incidence of brain-based, you know, cognitive neurological-based care that's accessible, it's just not, but it could be. And and I know I'm biased, but I, I, no. You're not I believe that it all. can be. No, you're not biased at all. I don't think it can be. I think it should be because we were saying before we were started recording, we know too much. Everybody knows. Too, there's no denying this anymore. We, we talk about it every day. The campaigns are, they put it out there for the whole country to see. And 
here, I mean, the articles, we, we, we know what we need. It's just until we look at mental health as health and invest in it in such a way, whether that's, you know, through brain science research or whatever yeah. it is, it's the brain itself, through operational stress, injury treatment, through treatment generally, like we do with physical health of the human body. I don't know. I, I think that's the next big step, the next big leap that this country needs to take in order to even begin to catch up, much less keep pace with the need. I love it. And, you know, I'm all in on that and we can chat a little bit more yeah. later because I, yeah. I, I think there's ways that we support what you're doing too. So I, I get why we were connected now. Now I get it. I'm a, yeah. I'm a little slow to the table sometimes, but I got yeah. this one. This is, this is great. What you're doing is great and is so needed. Now, when you think about this world also of brain health, and, and I think I may know one or two things that you're going to say, but we'll see what really frustrates you today about the world of the overall world of brain health. What's one or two of your greatest levels of frustration? My the great probably the number one greatest frustration that I confront all the time, and I I almost speak I come across pretty pretty abrupt with people, kind of exasperated now at this stage of the game, is when people we can't we fail to look at or think of or want to treat mental health like we would with any physical injury. And I know I'm we're kind of back on that physical physical injury, visible injury mm-hmm. versus the invisible injury of the brain, which you can't necessarily point at and see, but a, you know, so that's my biggest frustration is I see people all the time when, would you ever walk around with a broken leg for two months, six months or two years before you sought treatment? Of course not. People would actually tell you that you're crazy. Like they, it, it doesn't compute in the, in the mind, but someone would, so, but the veterans and folks that we were seeing when we first started doing this work, in 2013, are coming to us eight and 10 years later for the first treatment ever after having been medically released from the Canadian Forces. Can you begin to imagine what type of presentation we would see coming through these doors in these group therapy programs? It'd be no different, frankly, if someone walked around with a physical injury or wound that was left exposed and open for eight or 10 years. It just boggles my mind to this day that we're still, the paths still are divergent and haven't connected around those realities for me. That's my most frustrating thing because especially coming through, I hope out of COVID and the pandemic, that maybe that could be the final crisis that brings these two streams versus diverge, because I don't know, it has to happen whereby we're not looking at these things in, in, in polar opposite worlds when it comes to treatment and access to care that is currently the case as far as I'm concerned. So that's probably been my most frustrating reality is, is I just don't understand why for all that we know, all where we come and all that we are doing and, and have the knowledge of today that we still haven't bridged that gap. Well, we're going to, and we are. And that's part of why our missions are, are intertwined and converging because what we know for a fact is that brain has a remarkable capacity for change throughout a lifetime. Neuroplasticity is neither good nor bad. It just is. And that's true. You can't argue that. So when people are struggling with, you know, I, I love what you said about, you know, 10 years post, we wouldn't do that. But what can be problematic and challenging for the system is, do I need a psychologist? Do I need an RCC? Do I need a psychiatrist? Do I just need to move more? You know, all of these sorts of things. And this is where the true systems-based interdisciplinary approach is required. 
Uh, and, and we need to look at behavior-based assessment along with the others because, you know, I love the work of James Clear and the Atomic Habits work, which I'm sure you're into yeah. too. You are what you repeatedly do. So then how do we move, you know, when someone presents 10 years post, can you imagine the medical term they, they talk about is the comorbidities, yes, the other conditions related. But if we get to the principal reason for the trauma, if we can get to that root, then start to appeal back some of those challenges, those other challenges, this change, what's more inspiring, right? Than seeing somebody come back. You know, I, I had one person I had the opportunity and privilege to be around and to spend time with who was 26 years post-traumatic brain injury due to yep. a motor vehicle accident, yep. living in his brother's basement, mm-hmm. expecting less of himself because he was told he was hurt. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I, we, and then, you know, conversely, when we're getting, we're moving the yardstick further and we're getting earlier, we're looking at mental health, a treating it as serious as any physical health situation by also looking at it. And by, when you're starting to do that, you're also like, we're trying to do in healthcare is always early intervention is key. So, yep. and now we're, we're, we here anyways, and whereas Canada are trying to make sure that's what, that's the approach we take. Early intervention is key. You know, you don't have to be diagnosed with an operational stress injury like PTSD, for example, to be uh, a candidate for for our programs. We want you if you're if you started not to sleep that well, if you're irritable, if you're drinking too much, you're not sleeping properly, if you're getting short and agitated with your spouse, your kids, or your, your mm-hmm. colleagues. These are the signs and symptoms where you start. You got to start thinking that maybe the prolonged exposure, maybe that last call has stuck. We use the term, you know, st- sticky things. Mm-hmm stuck to you that you're not, you have not processed through that particular traumatic experience. Therefore, if you don't begin to rectify it, you can actually become traumatized by its existence. So, you know, I, we just had a police officer come in on, he was now a lived experience peer on our trauma resiliency program right before this, this, this podcast, just stop in on his way out to uh, a program coming up this weekend to say, thanks. You know, he's a graduate of our trauma resiliency program. He was off work. He's now back to work as a police officer in the Toronto Police Service. Just wanted to come in and shake everybody's hand, get a ball cap, get a sticker for his car and get on to going out and help and pay his experience forward to help others that are going to be in this group coming up this weekend. So that's a great example of uh, that. It really fits across the board of early intervention being key. It had not gone on too far or too long in this man's life, yet he was really in a, in a tough spot nonetheless. So, you know, you, 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 you kind of put that up as the comparable against someone that talk about comorbidities and what people will be living with having suffered and struggled 10 years, really much on their own, usually had blown through a relationship or two or three, yeah. oh, usually yeah. lost touch with everybody in their life that really could be that caregiver, caretaker, that support beside and behind them. Wow, tough spots to come and then pr- provide an intervention at that time. So we know that it's no different than if you left left some sort of physical injury for the length of time, and then the healthcare provider is trying to treat that diagnosis, having gone really undiagnosed and subsequently untreated for that length of time. It's a lot more difficult. So that's what we're trying to do here: is, is just really take it to the sector, to members, to the employers, to workplaces, and say we need to look at it this way. Start here. Start now. Yeah. Train your members to begin to understand what to look for themselves, their peers, the system as a whole, as a workplace culture. Yeah. You work, then you work back from that, uh, what for on the more acute needs. I love it. And I think there's a lot that we can do to support that as well. And, uh, I just think it's so incredibly needed, you know, for, for me, when I think about our lens, it's really, everybody needs to know the facts and the facts are you can improve. 
Uh, what what level of improvement? Well, that we don't know. What level of effort you're willing to put in? We also don't know. But we do know that things can change. And we have so many great examples across our amazing country where in other fields, we've seen the evidence of this. Uh, when we look at spinal cord injuries is one totally. example. But when we look at this, this is a problem. This is the thing. This is a problem we can move towards solving, like and, without question. And fast. And yeah. fast. I mean, that example here this afternoon was just but one example of one member of a very large police service in Ontario. But that person's self-described life has changed. And he's now helping 12, 13 people at a time every day. He's now an advocate and an ambassador through the Toronto Police Service. Like, we're, we're moving fast here because we're actually making, this isn't, we're not scratching the surface. Like no. our, what we're doing here, our programs aren't just scratching the surface. We're not just, you know, taking members out camping or walk, like beginning the conversation. We're actually into that intervention kind of thing. We're into the trauma processing side of it, which is actually giving these, these members the tools to, to understand, manage, process and get through things that have been bothering them for a very long time. And I think now the next part about, it, of course, is where the responsibility, I think, truly lies that needs to be the biggest catalyst to affect change in this, in this uniform service sector here is the employers themselves. I mean, can, yeah. I always use the example of the broken leg Would you walk on it for six months or a year before you actually went to a doctor. Are you crazy? Of course not. Well, the other example to use is, I mean, would you just walk into a police station jump in a car, put the uniform on and go out there and start patrolling your neighborhood. That sounds the mo- like the most ludicrous thing you'd ever say yeah. or suggest because it doesn't make any sense because you're not trained on how to use any of the gear, turn the system on the car, fire a weapon, even put the uniform on itself. You have no idea what you're doing unless you're properly trained for years on end in order to do these yeah. jobs. And yet we know we train them in such a way because we know what they're going to confront. We know what they're going to experience. We know what they're going to see over and over and over and over again. So we know all these things again, but why then have we not prioritized? Why are these employers, employee relationships never prioritized psychological health and wellness as part of training to do this job? And the consequences of that reality that hasn't happened has been the downstream effects that we're seeing now on masks, never before on masks, because those systems aren't in place from the level of, cadets, depot, training, college, to the first shift, to shift number 900. There's just, you know, there's just, there's not sufficient resources in place to begin to understand what is happening to someone. So all they do is naturally they go back to that stoic, which is all these uniform positions, our identity, stoicism, service above self, suck it up, buttercup, I'm fine until the proverbial, you know, what hits the fan. And we, and because, because that is when the natural side of the human body just takes over. Absolutely. And I think that the cool thing is you look at what you've done, right? You're doing it. Here you are today, 2013. It was, what am I doing? Wow. Oh, these people think I'm crazy. You know, a laptop and a dream rooted in service and look at where you are now. And that's one really cool book. I recently read the gap in the game. I think it's called where you really just want to continue to measure yourself backwards is, mm-hmm. you know, and Garmin is at 1% better every day. But the, those two together, I think there's a lot of wisdom in those two concepts, because if you look at where you were, Scott, you know, in 2013 to where you are now and look at that, that gap and how much gain occurred in that gap. Wow. It's exciting for me to think, OK, then you take it nine years from today. 
where's Scott going to be? And ultimately not where's Scott going to be, but where's Canada going to be and how many more lives are going to be improved because of that? Totally. I mean, just as uh, we started with as a foundation and we built our first program in 2000. So foundation being we fun, you raised the funds and dispersed them to third party community kind of providers of programs. And then 2015 built our first, realized we wanted to be on the pointier end of care of the mm-hmm. gaps, developed our first ever couples group therapy trauma program, never looked mm-hmm. back. Then went on to programs designed for ill and injured members themselves, for spouses, for surviving spouses, couples, animal-assisted therapy for PTSD through PTSD service dogs and couples equine-assisted therapy. And then from that, took all that curriculum and realized as part of the workplace flow that we have a workplace issue. Everyone's always looking at, well, this member is maybe just not up to snuff against the others. Mm -hmm. Why is this member affected by this? But the person and their partner isn't affected at all. Kind of myth-busting all this stuff to realize that, no, we need to actually do a lot of more, more of this work upstream. And then get started. So that was our the creation of our trauma-informed workplace training division here that we have now that really drove us through the pandemic when we weren't, you know, every single work employer was calling us going, like, there's no noise, no one's saying anything on the third floor, like the management's gone quiet, the members don't talk to each other, everyone's at a peak stress, hypervigilant state, and we don't have any reason, we don't even know how to have this conversation amongst ourselves, much less making sure we're having the right conversations around this topic. So that led to the creation of our before operational stress program, trauma-informed leadership. And then now what led us to Matt Johnston and Gus, and, and that is what we're excited is tomorrow, actually, as timing would have it on this call is, you know, we're, we're actually providing it out to the healthcare community, healthcare sector at large, our first ever course called the Introductory to Trauma Exposed Professionals. So clinically facilitated four-hour course led by Dr. Tim Black, the University of Victoria, who's actually going to walk through just to begin to help healthcare practitioners and providers begin to understand the nuances, the unique needs of the military, first responders, civilian divide, how you have to approach these conversations as practitioners. Because every time we go, we feel like we've bridged that next gap. There's a next gap. You know, it's a bit of a moving target. And one of the things I've heard most commonly in my time doing this work over the last decade is I put my hand up. So not just access to care, bridging the conversation we've had today, not just on bridging the conversation between mental health conversation and mental health access. But then when, even if you find access to treatment, is the treatment effective for the needs of the individual when it comes to a mental health injury, specifically within uniform service, which is a different, you know, there's another mm-hmm. unique layer on top of who that practitioner is in front of than just, you know, Scott Maxwell civilian. So if that care isn't tailor-made and culturally specific and culturally appropriate, and those practitioners aren't occupationally aware, we've heard it time and again. I tried, I went and saw my community provider clinician A, they couldn't spell first responder as far as I'm concerned, yeah. and I never went back. So very complex. I mean, as much as it, we know where we need to go, it's still, it's complex. It's you need to make sure that you know treatment is provided adequately and for the need of that individual, not unlike again, as we say in the physical health yeah, side. Hundred percent. They die. Everybody's treating me. My GP's treating me different than they treat my wife. I know that's a fact. So you know, we look at it. We know what to do. We do it in one sphere of healthcare in Canada already. There's a lot that can be extrapolated over from a systems level. To your point, well, what I want to say here, just sorry to stop you, but I think it's so important 
is the only way we're going to do this is by increasing awareness and also empowering people by saying exactly what you said. This is a problem we can solve and we can solve it quickly, but it's going to take us working together. So that's where I say, if, you know, Scott's message kind of held a lot of relevance for you, which I'm sure it did. I just ask, download it and share it. We have social media now. We have a remarkable capacity to share information quickly. Tag Scott in it, tag Wounded Warriors Canada and get it out there because this is a cause that's so important for all Canadians and not just those that have served, but for all of us, because these are the people in our communities who put their lives knowingly in danger to serve all of us. So we together must do our part to do a better job taking care of them when they come back. So I ask, please download, share this, please. It's an important message. Unfortunately, it's not getting heard as much as it should be, but we're going to work towards changing that together. And please, please do that. That's what I ask. I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Strength in numbers, you know, uh, is the way we go. Partnerships, we exist on the backs of partnerships as an organization. Partnering, bridging the gap in the service side, the community, the service providing side of Canada for mental health, just getting out of silos across the system as a whole, working together, leveraging each other's strengths, yeah, find ways to not be redundant, but pair it together and work together with organizations and service providers that are actually doing things differently from one another, which is a wonderful thing to bring out a more robust, navigable spectrum yeah. of care to all Canadians. I love it. So I'm always curious when I have really interesting, eclectic people like yourself on, is there one or two influences that really help to shape your perspective? These could be books. This could be a professor. This could yeah. be a person. Yeah. Top of mind right off the bat is general uh, Romeo Dallaire. So I, I was, I worked with him when I was on, wow. on parliament Hill. He was appointed to the Senate when I was on the Hill. We did, because I was working in, you know, paying attention to foreign affairs, consular affairs, international relations, obviously. He had just started his child uh, soldier initiative at Dow, which just trying to end the use of children as weapons of war is the mission. And so we started to connect just professionally up there. But I remember he was really having a hard time and i walked by his office in the Senate chamber of center block all the time, just to see if he, and one day he was kind of, his head was on his desk and he took me into his office and I just wanted to have a conversation with him just to see if he was doing all right. And obviously he wasn't. So we, but we struck up a conversation that I'll never forget. And we forged a friendship from there that when I left the public service from the government perspective and joined into this space, I went up back up to Parliament Hill and asked him if he would lend his name to our cause, to our organization as the first time you'd ever lend his name to an organization that wasn't his outside of his own work. And he agreed to do it reluctantly. He agreed to do it. And really from that point forward, he he influenced and changed the growth just by when we added him on, it was really just me and a small little group of board members at the time. So there was no national influence or credibility at the time for Wounded Warriors Canada. And that changed overnight when we announced him as our national patron. He was the first person that ever told me to look, make sure you, anything you develop or you're thinking about developing in this world to ensure it has a family-based lens always. Because mm. no one was talking about the family back then. It was always just support for the ill and injured member over and right. over again. He was so forward thinking because of his own life experiences. And he taught me one thing that I use in my presentations, a line 
that I'm, I'm really aggressive on and using nowadays more than ever is he told me back then that mental health is as much a leadership issue as it is a healthcare issue. And he was referring, of course, the time he returned from Rwanda and his senior leadership and chain of command asked him what it was like over there playing with the elephants. So instead of actually bringing him in, thanking for him for his service, getting him into care early and often, letting him process and begin to process what he went through. In fact, all they did was ask him questions like that and put him to do more work instantly because that was how they thought his trauma would, quote unquote, go away. So I've learned pretty much everything that I impart in this organization every day through General Delaire. And in so doing, it's also been an amazing thing because he's become just a wonderful personal friend that we, you know, go to baseball games and hang out on weekends. You know, it's it's got the best of it. both worlds. So that's my influence. That's, I love it. That's an amazing influence and one of my favorite I've ever heard on this show. So for people that are are out there, they've got somebody in, you know, that in their circle that's really struggling right now uh, and needs help. Uh, how do they reach out to you, a member of your team, if they need service? Maybe they they need service for a loved one, or maybe their organization needs some training, or they need some training. How do they get a hold of you and reach your services? Honestly, just the easiest thing to do is go to woundedwarriors.ca. On there, uh, the tabs are along the homepage. We have it broken out for employers, for warriors, awesome. for training, for clinicians who want to learn more and maybe either be part of our team or learn I'll learn more on how to, how to support the population. It's all itemized. It's broken out. Perfect. Phone call, email away. I love it. Well, I, I want to acknowledge you and thank you for your action bias, um, for doing what you've done uh, rooted in service. So something I want to leave you with is that I know those that did serve our country in uniform, they're a very select, special group, but also those who have the conviction to do something in service of those that were in uniform are also in a very special place as well. And, and I think you're right there. And it's uh, it's remarkable being able to spend this hour with you learning about your work and why you do what you do and how that really is forcing your actions. So again, thank you for your time and for your work. And um, I appreciate you. Now, right back at you from all your experience, what you do building this business and helping others, it's purity of purpose in the you know, a mission clarity. So thank you for everything you're doing. And uh, I look forward, frankly, to working together long-term. 100%. Thank you. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and want to learn more about the Bears platform, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. Uh, training is very accessible and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neuro rehabilitation platform.
Thank you again for your support, and we'll see you on the next episode. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the Bears platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The Bears platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.